You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geiser. This month, we're reading Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're discussing Chapter 6 of Beyond Behaviors by Dr. Mona Delahook. And we're going to get into that. But first, we're going to play a game and we're going to play Like It, Love It, Leave It. So, Laura, you want to go first? Yes, I do. All right. Like It, Love It, Leave It. Denim, sweatpants, leggings. (laughs) Wow. This is a question for the ages. Okay. Love denim, like leggings, leave sweatpants. All right. Yes. So I'm not really a sweatpant girly. Wish I was. But um, I don't like constriction at the ankle. Yeah. (laughs) I know they make different kinds of sweatpants. But I don't really (laughs) love the feeling of like a voluminous pant that then kind of comes in at the ankle. I don't love that. Um, And I don't find them to be like, at least leggings are stretchy. (laughs) Um, So normally if I'm... I actually have these pants from Target that I like so much. I bought them in like five different colors. I have two pairs of them in black. Uh, I think they're supposed to be like a workout pant. It's kind of a jogger thing, but they're so comfy. They're not flattering. They're not cute. But for just like living my life, I love those. Yeah. But leggings I also like. Sometimes you can throw on like a long sweater. It's kind of a cute vibe. And denim, classic. When I was moving, I realized I have two many pairs of jeans oh yeah I think I counted it I have like 25 pairs of jeans why because when I start feeling like bad about myself I'm like you know what I need jeans I need new jeans (laughs) like the right pair of jeans just makes your life you're like oh my god (laughs) so I'm always like chasing this holy grail like where's my perfect jean it has to have like the highest rise waist of your life (laughs) It needs to make, you know, the tush look good. Mm -hmm. The length has to be correct. And right now everything's so cropped and it's weird. I mean, you're tall, Laura, so I bet everything looks great on you. But I am 5'3 and a cropped pant, Well, it's just, it can be very challenging. A cropped pant looks too, turns into like a capri, not a cropped pant on me. It's a capri (laughs) pant. Like a regular length pant is a cropped pant on me. (laughs) It's absurd. I feel that. Do you, you have to buy like long jeans, tall? I have found certain brands that make pants long enough, like Hudson, even though they're a little short sometimes. But I like a crop. Like, I listen, do mm. I have some wider jeans? Yes. More comfy, like relaxed fit. Yes. But I am just a person. I like a tight, slim fitting jean. It's my favorite. <laughs> and and I'm never giving it up. You like a skinny jean. Call it what it is. <laughs> I like a skinny, a skinny jean. jean. I love a skinny jean. And <laughs> yeah, they go down to the what ankle. <laughs> they go to the ankle and then I throw on a cute slide. Like that is my look for going to clients' houses is like a skinny jean that has, they're always Hudson's. They have like a tiny bit of stretch in them. Not a lot, mm. not skin tight, but you know, that's what I like. That's definitely what I, but what I was going to say is the way pants are now, it is hard to get them. The the stylish pants don't look great on the tush. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. (laughs) To me. I I try on many, many, many pairs. Yeah. And sometimes I make questionable purchasing decisions. Sometimes I don't. I don't know. I've had pairs of jeans I've never worn. See? Never worn. 
I know. But anyway, Laura, I'm dying to know. Okay, like it, love it, leave it. Your turn. Oh, mine is going to be love, love leggings. I live in leggings all the time. Live in them. Like, I cannot imagine my life without leggings. (laughs) Are you wearing leggings right now? Yes. Yes, I am. A very, like... There's this pair of leggings I get on Amazon that is black, but never fades. Never, ever, ever fades. Like they are the darkest black. Very, very soft. I have no idea what they're made out of. They're not great fitting. Like the top is too wide. Link in the show notes. Link in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, we'll include an affiliate link to Laura's favorite leggings. Um, They are so buttery soft and so comfortable for like just being around your house. It is fantastic. Anyway, yes, of course, I'm wearing leggings right now. But I, you know, I wear a lot of like workout leggings. Yeah. Denim is like for when I need to leave the house, um, when I need to look okay. And yeah, same as you, sweatpants. I do have a few pairs. I like them. They're not flattering. They're not they're not the most comfortable all the time. So yeah, we just differ on which one we like and which one we love. Yeah, well, I'm wearing jeans right now, so I guess I do love them. Yeah. <laughs> it tracks. <laughs> okay. Here I go. Like it, love it, leave it. Shopping, museums, bar hopping. Oh. Let's just get this out of the way. I'm leaving museums. Bye. <laughs> bye (laughs) not even gonna try to pretend okay well i mean no i'm gonna love bar hopping (laughs) and like shopping i mean what type of shopping are we talking about going to the mall are we going to like a little street where we just pop into little shops or are we talking about grocery shopping i do love grocery shopping no we're talking clothes shop oh then yeah i'm gonna love the bar hopping that is not like something i do often but love going to a bar love going to several bars fun meet up with friends meet new people great and uh shopping's okay yeah i like shopping i don't shop a lot and uh leave the museum not even a question well just can't remember the last time can't even remember the last time i went to a museum you know okay what about you all right love shopping like bar hopping, leave museums. But I don't want to leave museums, but I have no choice. But I do love museums, and I have been recently. Which museum did you go to? The Bowers, which is in Orange County. Uh, It's really cool. I'm trying to think of a good museum I've been to. I mean, I've been to the Getty. I love, I like it. When I'm there. How about the Huntington Library? The Huntington Library. In Pasadena? I've never been. It's like gardens. Huntington Garden. But they have a... They have a museum there. It's really beautiful. It's just, listen, I'll go to a museum and I'll enjoy it. Yeah. But if I have to choose out of the three, I can't keep that one. That's what I'm saying. (laughs) Don't worry. You don't have to defend yourself as a museum hater. We all know the truth. (laughs) Please, like, don't stop listening to me. This doesn't mean I'm not intellectual. (laughs) I still have things to say. (laughs) Oh, man. Um, Okay. Yeah. And then bar hopping, I like, but shopping, I love. I know. We're finding out that you're a big shopper today. Like, you solve problems with buying jeans. Who would have guessed? I mean, I attempt to solve them. Yeah. Yeah. My sister and I love, like, going to the mall for hours. You comb the store. You have so many things in your changing room. And then you go to Nordstrom Cafe afterwards, have a fabulous Mm -hmm. meal. Or you go to Nordstrom Cafe first, 
share a bottle of wine, then shop. <laughs> oh my gosh. They really bring the party. I did not know about this. I want to go shopping with you guys. You should. <laughs> you know what? I was going to ask you when you go to the mall, what food you eat. And now I'm finding out it's much more classy than me because you're going to Nordstrom, Nordstrom Cafe. Cafe. Like I'm like, are you a hot dog on a stick girl? Do you eat Sabaro? Wetzel's pretzels. If I'm eating in the food court, I'm going to have Mongolian barbecue. Wow. Another shocker. <laughs> This is like, I don't even know who you are. Nordstrom Cafe, Mongolian barbecue. Surprise. <laughs> when you get Mongolian barbecue as a vegetarian, do you get tofu in it? I will just do only vegetables. Okay. All right. But it is amazing. Piling up that bowl, broccoli, water chestnuts, onion, mushrooms. Like, give it. It's amazing. Yeah. And then they cook it right in front of you and it's so hot and delicious. What about you? If I go to the mall, the thing that calls to me the most is a pretzel, like the Auntie Annie's pretzel stands or something like that. I want like a pretzel dipped in cheese or a pretzel coated in Parmesan cheese. But growing up, my absolute favorite, favorite thing in the world Ooh. is hot dog on a stick, getting the cheese on a stick. And oh. my dream job as a child was to work at hot dog on a stick. And I'm surprised I never made that happen. Pause. I was just going to ask <laughs> Did you ever work at Hot Dog on a Stick? Because I could really envision you in the outfit. I could see you in the. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> what a missed opportunity. <laughs> I look like somebody who works at Hot Dog on a Stick, right? <laughs> you do. I didn't know there was a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh. When I was a kid, it w I would just watch them making that lemonade. Like, someday oh, yeah. that'll be me. I told you before, I worked at the mall. I worked at Abercrombie and Hollister, but. Never made my dream happen with hot wow, dog on a stick. Too bad. I know. I what know. Hilarious. Okay. <laughs> All right. I love that. Okay. I think. Okay. Let's get back on topic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, everyone. Well, we hope you had a fun time listening to us chat. Maybe you were reminiscing about your dream mall job. <laughs> Stay tuned. We're going to get into chapter six from Beyond Behaviors. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. <laughs> Since I'm a teletherapist, I use Boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing, and I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. <laughs> the best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. The SLP Book Club is not just a podcast, it's a community. Go to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club to join the discussion and connect with us after each episode. 
Want even more of the SLP Book Club? The resources we make to support the content of the books we read are available for free on our Patreon or at the Laura G. SLP Teachers Pay Teachers store. You can find links to them in the show notes. To learn more about the SLP Book Club, go to theslpbookclub.com. You can contact us by emailing hello at theslpbookclub.com. Follow us on Instagram at SLP underscore book club or on TikTok at the SLP book club. So chapter six focuses on working on challenges from the body up to the top down. The chapter begins with the story about Daryl. So last chapter, we talked all about Morgan. Mm -hmm. And this time we're talking all about Daryl. So Daryl is a young boy. He had a really difficult time managing his emotions. And there was an example of how during a game of dodgeball, another boy told Daryl, you're out. And then Daryl punched him. And it took a really long time for Daryl to re-regulate. And obviously this was confusing and upsetting for him. But in order to help children who seem to display these behaviors without wanting to, we need to help them to make the connection between co-regulation and helping them to self-regulate their emotions and behaviors. So near the end of the chapter, we'll talk more about that self-regulation component. But, you know, as we've been talking about through this entire book, every child is unique. And so every situation needs to be looked at in detail before we can figure out how to help the child do this. So to figure out what's going on with the child, Dr. Delahook recommends using the acronym IDEA, which we talked about in the last chapter. So just as a reminder, I stands for inquire about the child's history and look at behaviors to discover patterns. D stands for determine what circumstances are added to the child's distress. E stands for examine what the results of these findings reveal about the triggers and underlying causes. And then A stands for address developmental challenges that add to the behaviors through our interactions and specialized support. So while chapter five was mostly about understanding the child's history, in this chapter, we're going to look at steps two through four of that IDEA in order to help them with their top-down strategies. So Dr. Delahook recommends collecting a case history from the parents when the child's not present in the room. It's really common for us to talk about kids in third person right in front of them, and that can add to their feelings of guilt and shame. So try to avoid that. And she also really recommends paying close attention to the information about attachment within the first couple of years of life. So there's typically going to be some stuff you might uncover there that could help you figure out what's going on. In the case of Daryl, his mother reported that his birth was unremarkable, and apparently she and her husband or Daryl's dad, had a flexible work situation because either one of them was pretty much always home with him during his first three years. And so once Daryl's parents and teachers had filled out a behavior tracking worksheet, I think over the course of a couple of weeks, they were then able to determine that most of his challenging behaviors were happening during times where there were less structure. So maybe on the playground or when there were other kids around, but not a lot of adult supervision. And this information kind of caused his parents to remember that during his first year of preschool, he had been bullied by an older child. And nobody was aware because these bullying incidents were happening in sort of like a treehouse structure during free play outside. So there weren't a lot of other adults around and it was sort of like a private place. And they only found out about the bullying when he got a pretty deep scratch on his face. 
And that was kind of it. The child who bullied him went to another school. And then Daryl's parents and teachers just kind of assumed he would get over it and move on. But the problem is, is that none of them anticipated how traumatic this bullying was for Daryl and how it really affected him and his threat detection system. So it kind of pushed him into like hyperdrive. And despite the bullying incidents happening many years before, it still most likely had an impact on his emotional and behavioral control. The entire team was now able to view his fight or flight behaviors as protective reactions that came from these memories. And then it helped everybody to understand why he reacted so strongly and unpredictably to what just seemed like run-of-the-mill kid experiences. And Dr. Delahook mentions that because it happened so long ago and was never discussed with him, he had not integrated these memories into his conscious awareness So over time and under the right conditions, his nervous system was just always ready for defense and he would strike out at others. So of course, as we've been talking throughout this whole book about the whole brain child, this brings to mind the strategy of name it to tame it and really discussing what has happened with kids so that they can integrate that and it doesn't turn into the situation like what happened with Daryl. Yeah, it just all of a sudden like you know, it sparked not just name it to tame it, but remember when we read The Whole Brain Child, and sorry for any listeners who haven't read it, but they tell that story of the kid who was in the car crash with his nanny mm-hmm. and she had a seizure while they were driving and that the parents knew the strategy of retelling the story over and over and providing factual information. And we really have to think about with kids, if they don't discuss something with an adult, their minds come up with, you know, or their bodies come up with thoughts and feelings about the world and what's happening that aren't really based on facts sometimes. So that child who gets bullied on the playground starts to feel this fear that every kid is going to be like that. So if the parents and teachers had been aware of the bullying, they could have helped him through it. But there are so many situations where we just don't know. We don't know things are happening, right? Yeah. Or kids don't, kids don't tell us. We're not aware, but yeah, should we just read the whole brain child again? <laughs> I know. I've been thinking about it. It's so <laughs> full of good information. Maybe I'll just listen to our podcast. <laughs> yeah. I'm too, I'm too nervous to go back and listen to our first episodes. <laughs> I feel that. All right. Okay. Sorry. Go on. Humans are complicated and our triggers and reactions to specific events depend on our own lived experiences. So one child might react strongly to something that doesn't bother another child at all. And anybody's reaction to a situation is probably just a combination of their own unique experiences combined with their individual differences. But it's easy to assume that an aggressive child is just lacking discipline or wanting attention or meaning to do harm to others. But in the case of Daryl, like so many other kids, he didn't have that top-down control of his behavior when he was triggered. Daryl's iceberg is shown on page 172, and it's super interesting to see the way that all of these underlying behaviors kind of combine to result in his aggressive behaviors at school. But what I like that she talked about in the book was that now that his team had a better understanding of Daryl's reactions and his history, they began to understand his behavior was not aggressive on purpose, but it was more of a defensive reaction that was triggered by these characteristics of either certain relationships within the school setting that reminded him of what happened, or maybe just the setting of school alone, just the physical setting. And 
these sights, these sensations, these sounds were all triggering his subconscious memory of being bullied at his preschool and caused what seemed on the surface to be this kind of fight or flight response. So Daryl's early experiences caused his threat detection system to shift into overdrive, which caused him to have these intense reactions. And the realizations helped everybody on the team, like his parents were now really relieved to understand there was a cause for this behavior. It wasn't something else. It wasn't something that they did. And even understanding his history helped his teachers and administrators to have more empathy for him. And it caused the school to hire a one-on-one aide for him who was supportive and warm and was able to really give him those safety cues throughout the school day. So the aide was also able to observe Daryl and give more information to support their hypothesis, like the fact that he reacted really strongly when kids approached quickly and without warning. And the final step of the process is to address developmental challenges through interactions and therapeutic support. So Dr. Delahook evaluated Daryl's social and emotional development and discovered that there were some gaps. And his parents agreed that it was difficult for him to talk about his own feelings, his behavior, and to reach out for help before he exploded. So when they tried to talk to him about these things, he either acted goofy or tried to change the subject or came up with some story like, well, he hit me first. And the upper levels of his social emotional house were not solidly developed yet. So these are the processes for social problem solving, symbolic development, and building bridges. Dr. Delahook developed a program to support Daryl's top-down thinking that included three steps. One, recognize that he was triggered or beginning to feel upset. Two, to do something to feel better, including maybe signaling help from an adult if he needed it. And three, learning to talk about his feelings and his thoughts. So the most important way to increase top-down abilities is to focus on the child's sense of relational security because children are best able to manage their emotions when there is a consistent tuned-in adult presence. And this helps to align with that concept of co-regulation. So when the classroom helper noticed that Daryl was sort of like veering off of the green pathway, they would move physically closer to him, use facial expressions and body postures like a warm sort of prosodic voice and a confident, relaxed, emotional presence. And sometimes if she noticed that Daryl was moving onto the red pathway, she would just like take him outside. They would just play for a little bit, help him calm down. This was normally enough to get him back on the green pathway. And then they would sort of move back into the classroom where she would give him space, but fade into the background. And within a short period of time, the playground and the classroom sort of became filled with cues of safety from the adults who were helping him. And week after week, his behaviors decreased in frequency. And this probably had to do mostly with the aide who was trained to support him so that he felt emotionally safe instead of like reprimanding him and coming down really harshly on him. So after a couple of months of progress, the next step was for Dr. Delahook to observe him during free play at school. Then she had a meeting with the team where they figured out the next step was for family relationship-based play therapy to more deeply address and help him with his social emotional development. He was still having difficulty in social interactions with peers, specifically when a group wanted to play a different game than he wanted to play. He was having really immature reactions, sort of like going off and doing his own thing. And this wasn't really unexpected due to the fact that he missed out on so much necessary practice and peer interaction when he was in preschool 
due to the bullying incidents. And then afterwards, when he was so dysregulated, he wasn't really getting those practice opportunities as much. So the decision to move forward with play therapy was made because the most direct and effective way that we can help children build social and emotional strength comes from the primary language of childhood, play, (laughs) (laughs) which we are all experts in now, thanks to Lisa Murphy. Mm -hmm. So if you want to learn more about this, we highly recommend you listen to the episodes from July and August, where we covered her book, Lisa Murphy on Play. It's a much more of a deep dive into why play is important for children's development and ways that you can support that with them. So play is a neural exercise because it flexes the muscle of emotional regulation within reciprocal interactions under the condition of safety with others. So it allows for children to integrate and use bottom-up and top-down functioning in real time. And it's just essentially practice to prepare for the complexity of the social world. Children are drawn to play because it allows them to connect with others as they work through and learn to tolerate different feelings and bodily states. From the polyvagal perspective, play exercises the productive use of the social engagement system to downregulate primitive fight or flight responses. And while playing, children are able to exercise in the green pathway while getting kind of close to the red pathway as they experiment with a bunch of different feelings and impulses in a safe way. So it helps children manage their big emotions and their fears and their concerns within a natural context. A good example of this is maybe like when you play peekaboo with a baby. So they experience this brief fear of losing eye contact with someone like, oh, no, where'd they go? And then you come back and they have this like delight, like, oh, my gosh, you reappeared. (laughs) (laughs) And this helps them to work through these feelings in a safe and playful way. I don't know about you, but when I I mean, obviously, I can tell from the way you're smiling and laughing that you like that, too. But reading her description of that and then you're probably going to describe hide and seek. It was like, oh my gosh, to think of that, that babies are a little, they just get like that little bit of fear. Yeah. And it's, we're building these skills. Their play gets more and more, you know, like risky and introducing these concepts that they're going to have to experience later. It was just, I've never even thought about it at all, at all like that. Yeah. So weird. (laughs) Me either. It was, It was really funny to look at it through a different, I mean, so hide and seek, right? So the child has to manage a small amount of stress while they run and hide. And if they're still learning to inhibit their behavior, they might not even be able to help making a little noise or letting you know where they are. I love that she said this is a good like litmus test of where a child's at with their inhibition control. And I just cannot help but think of my daughter like wanting to play hide and seek. And just (laughs) the fact that she would always like, Make this little sound like, <laughs> like okay, uh, you're not very good at this. <laughs> but it's so like, I just think of her little body like shaking with excitement because, you know, it's so hard to inhibit. Yeah. It's really cute. In the example of Daryl, he was often on the red pathway when engaging with others at the preschool level because of what was happening with the bullying at that time. And it continued to affect him in elementary school, where his aggressive behavior caused other kids to either avoid him or to try to control his behavior by telling him like what to do when they were playing. So if you think of it that way, it's really not surprising that his play skills were underdeveloped. 
And Dr. Delahook encouraged his parents to engage with him in playful interactions on a daily basis to help him develop those skills. So because children with behavioral difficulties tend to be more vulnerable, one of our goals is to help them tolerate uncomfortable sensations, feelings, or thoughts. And this is a great way for play to support developing those characteristics, especially because play is the natural language of childhood. So it also helps children to improve their stress tolerance. And overall, it's just a safe way to explore themselves and the world at the same time. And through a developmental lens, play with parents and caregivers helps to address developmental gaps so that kids can improve their abilities and eventually get rid of the underlying reasons for their behaviors. And developmentally based play prepares children to gain resources for controlling their behavior, their emotions, and their impulses. And then I love that she talked more about therapeutic play because I had not really done much research about this, so it was very educational for me. And she said the characteristics of therapeutic developmental play are that they require social interaction with an engaged adult caregiver, that the child and the adult are enjoying the play and feel safe, that the child sets the agenda, and that the play is characterized by reciprocity and mutual engagement. So play is the easiest way to figure out what a child is thinking about and dealing with. Just playing with a child can give you clues and answers to questions that they may not be able to talk about. And children show us what their concerns are through play and often way before they can verbalize their concerns. Relationship-based developmental play involves following the child's lead while the child shows us what they're dealing with through the actions, themes, emotions, and content of their play. The adult's role is not to lead or teach or judge any part of the play. We just need to follow the child's lead with a non-judgmental sense of energy and curiosity and make sure to pay attention to the type of physical movement, toys, themes, symbols, and ideas that the child naturally focuses on, because these will help us figure out the child's internal motivations and their emotions and their fears and concerns. Dr. Delahook worked with Daryl's parents over a couple of months, encouraging them to play with him and hovering in the background observing while just giving a little hint or suggestion. So Daryl loved to play with animal figurines, and a lot of the themes in his play surrounded getting lost in the forest or wounding and being wounded by other animals. So this is a good example of how working through emotional themes through symbols like being an animal or being a doll or a superhero can help children figure out their own feelings, impulses, fears, and desires within a safe space. And playing with his parents offered Daryl a perfect way to flex his emotional thinking and problem-solving with benefits to his real life. Later on, Daryl's play progressed to like good guy, bad guy stuff, where he really loved to have his parents be the bad guy and then he would like give the punishment. And this is probably his way of acting out the early traumatic experiences that he had with his bully. Dr. Delahook mentions that sometimes certain themes within a child's play can cause parents to feel uncomfortable or to want to step in and give a lesson. So like in Daryl's play, he would beat the bad guy which caused his parents to want to step in and kind of give that like, oh, we need to be nice sort of lesson. But it's important to remember that the child's play is helping them to flex their emotional range and it'll make it less likely that they'll engage in these kinds of behaviors in real life if we allow them to work it out while they're playing. And the play therapy was really helpful for Daryl and his parents understood that they were helping him work through these feelings of helplessness that he had internalized from his preschool experience. So when a child can share their experiences, they can begin to find their own solutions to their problems. 
And this leads to improved abilities to self-regulate because they're developing their top-down thinking, which helps children to inhibit their stress response. And while Daryl enjoyed symbolic play through the use of figurines, not all kids respond well to that. So, you know, try to figure out what the child likes. Maybe they want to throw a ball around or take a walk or kind of have a conversation. But whatever play works for them and that's enjoyable and free-flowing and has back-and-forth conversation, that's what you're looking for to encourage that interpersonal safety. Some tips for relationship-based play with children are to unplug, let go of all distractions, have fun, stay curious, follow the child's lead, and value their play needs and themes. Don't forget to be interactive and engaged. Let go of any agenda. Don't ask questions that you already know the answer to. (laughs) (laughs) And become the character and connect to your spontaneous inner child. And the most important thing is to have fun. There are some great resources in the back of the book if you want to learn more about therapeutic parent-mediated play. And even if you're not a caregiver or a parent yourself, play can still be incorporated into almost every childhood profession or role. Once Daryl's social-emotional development was strengthened due to his classroom support and this therapeutic play, he was able to better engage with adults in top-down processing and reasoning about his feelings and ideas. And this became clear when one day he came home and told his dad, I was sad today because my best friend sat with a new group of kids at lunch. So he was showing the ability to process his feelings from the top down instead of using physical aggression. Go Daryl. I know. To celebrate the power of the thinking brain, we should acknowledge a child's expression of their experience. And we can validate the child sharing their experience and provide them with positive solutions. So the thinking brain can help us to turn bad experiences into manageable ones as the child becomes an active participant in discovering their own solutions. We can also let kids know that they now have the ability to find solutions to their own problems and to future problems and emphasize this incredible power of awareness and human connection and how it can help us feel better. We also need to remember that first a child needs to be engaged and nurtured through emotional co-regulation before they're developmentally ready for top-down processing. So we saw that that's exactly what happened with Daryl. First, he was able to connect, have this great one-on-one aid. That helped him to have that emotional co-regulation. And only then could they move on to this therapy that helped him with his top-down processing. And top-down control helps children to understand themselves better, connect with and soothe their own difficult emotions, and discover the power of their own mind. At this point, you can use some techniques like cognitive behavioral therapies to help support them. There's other approaches that can be helpful with kids who struggle with disruptive behaviors like collaborative and proactive solutions and the blended approach of dialectical behavioral therapy. She has some other examples of hybrid approaches like DIR floor time, art therapy, mindfulness practice, and some examples of bottom-up approaches are adapted PE, yoga, movement therapies, and biofeedback. And Dr. Delahook explains that she doesn't have kids use colors to identify their own pathways because children can develop some negative associations with the colors. Like we all had those teachers who used the color cards and you know when you moved from green to yellow, like that anxiety. (laughs) So she has them come up with their own terms to describe the pathways. In the book on pages 186 and 187, she walks you through how to do an exercise with the child to help them come up with their own terms 
for what's happening in their brain and their body. And by working through this exercise with the child, we're letting them know all people experience a variety of emotions and all the pathways are you know, different, but everybody moves through them. And this exercise can be fun because it's sort of different from what adults normally do with kids, which is try to just like stamp out the negative behavior. And instead you dig deeper. So when we talk to children about the pathways, we want to help them understand their physiological state and offer them lots of praise for their increasing awareness of connection between their body and their mind. And we also want to build on that information to support children with recognizing what they need if they find themselves on the blue or the red pathway. And then the next step is to help children come up with their own personalized solutions when they find themselves in a tough situation. So they've been improving their ability to identify their physiological state. And there are a couple of worksheets that the child can fill out in order to understand their own stress response and how to think about it. And they have Daryl's samples in there. And it's really cute. I love the pictures. I don't know if he really drew them all. I was wondering. It doesn't look like those three pictures were drawn by the same child. So I know the middle one. I was really wondering about (laughs) (laughs) it looked like clip art. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So cute. So first they fill out the mind and body experience worksheet and they find a word that describes how they're feeling and then they draw a picture. Then they fill out the noticing my reactions worksheet and then finally the developing my strategies worksheet. And it's important for children to come up with their own self-regulation solutions because they connect their body and brain in a way that can only make sense to them. And this really increases the effectiveness overall. So children often provide the most thoughtful responses and they can be really surprising. So like maybe when you're driving in the car or taking a walk, you could ask your child, when you're upset, what can I do to support you or help you feel better? And this puts the ball in their court to come up with a solution that works for them. Another activity you can do with a child is to have them think of certain situations that could possibly happen and then come up with a plan just in case they ever do encounter that situation. And this helps them to recall difficult situations and forecast different outcomes for those specific instances. And overall, you know, the exercise helps children become familiar with the ideas of how to calm themselves down. And they use an example of Daryl. He called it situation room with mom and Daryl because apparently he heard about the situation room in the White House, which is hilarious because isn't he seven? Yeah. Uh, But you draw three columns on a piece of paper and you title them what happened, how I felt and what I can do. And then you can also encourage top-down thinking by creating a space where exploration and non-judgment are present. So this is just about having a conversation where you don't have any distractions, the TV's off, there's no devices around. And you can start by maybe sharing your own feelings about something that happened and see if that might help them open up about their own feelings. And these strategies overall were so helpful in helping Daryl to heal his subconscious wounds because the whole educational team switch their perspective from thinking of his behavior as the target of change and instead encouraging supportive relationships and individualized developmental support. So these things all work together to provide him with the healing power of relationships to target his social and emotional issues that were causing the challenges in the very beginning. And then once his autonomic regulation was stable, he was able to learn these top-down strategies that helped him to use his mind to calm his body. And he was really supported in both of these, the top-down and bottom-up abilities. The whole team was there for him. 
And then the most amazing thing that happened with Daryl was that he experienced neuroception and turned it into perception. So basically, he developed self-awareness. So my last note is go, Daryl. Love to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) I love Daryl. Yeah. You know, I texted you about him before we recorded today. (laughs) No, we really went on a journey with Daryl, you know. (laughs) We did. And his... You know, like the way that he chose to describe all the states, like the green pathway for him, he called it happy camper, which was so cute. Yeah. Your little son. He was just adorable. But, oh, it just makes me think, I like her approach to this. It, It makes me think about in speech therapy sometimes, especially maybe our kids on the autism spectrum. We work with them on problem solving. And yeah, I've always felt like the therapy I've done in the past hasn't felt very authentic or effective. Yeah. And this approach where you teach them about the state, you know, their physiological states and what it feels like when you're on, you're not telling them the red pathway, but when you are, or what it feels like to be on the blue versus the green. And then, you know, really working through real situations, the situation room with Daryl, (laughs) Daryl and mom (laughs) Uh, talking about like what, Things that come up that happen, how you felt, and then like if it happens again, how you would deal with it to get yourself back to being a happy camper or whatever the kid uses to describe the green pathway. It's just, you know, you're really putting the power in their hands and you're not, you're not just kind of telling them what to do or working on these really like hypothetical situations. Yeah, it's tailored to the child. Yeah. Which I love. Yeah. I loved it. This was a good chapter. Me too. I'm really proud of Daryl. He worked so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, everyone, thank you for joining us as we talked about chapter six. We're looking forward to chapter seven, which we will talk about in our next episode. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. At the SLP Book Club, our mission is to learn, grow, and connect with other SLPs and educators. If you love what we're doing, the best way to support the podcast is to leave a rating and review wherever you listen. This helps other SLPs find the show so our community can grow even stronger. We appreciate you so much and hope you keep listening and reading along with us.